down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 528. It is a Monday. That means everybody's back to work, including me. I know that's not always the happiest time, but maybe I can kick your Monday off with a little bit of uh, information and edutainment as we look at how to uh, live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let's uh, take care of our housekeeping real quick and get off to a great start. i got a bunch of your questions lined up today. Remember, on Monday, I do your questions by email, or I do comments on articles and occurrences around the world by email. The best way to get on the show like this is to send me an email at question for Jack, question for Jack in the subject line, and uh, send that email to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It doesn't get easier than that. That is my personal email. It doesn't go to any special screen or anything, but I do use Outlook, Outlook rules to filter things. And if you want to get consideration, make sure you put question for Jack in the subject line of these emails. Also... A reminder, most people have been doing this really good lately. When you have a question about something in your life and you have a lot of background information, give me the question in a sentence or two at most. And then after that, give me your book of information about it. That'll help me screen it quicker because if I get this like long-ass email and there's like a question buried somewhere in paragraph four of seven paragraphs, I'm not going to get to it. I'm going to just go, okay, fine. I'll email you back maybe say, hey, thanks for the kind words or whatever, and that's it because I don't have time to do that for the screening process. I'm a one-man show for now. So that'll give you a better chance to get on the air. Also remember, 866-65-THINK to get on the Friday shows where you call your question in. You have a better chance of getting on the air with those than the email questions because the volume's decidedly different. All right, let's take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping, and then we'll take your questions. Sponsor of the day number one, Ready-Made Resources. Hey, man, what more can you ask from a company than for their name to say what they do and then for them to do what they say? That's what Ready-Made Resources does. Great sponsor, been with us a long time, well over a year now. Um, I see these guys being a sponsor as long as the show's around. That's just the, the dedication uh, that they have over there. Check out Ready-Made Resources, and when you're there, I don't say this as much as I used to, uh, but they have this awesome catalog on solar-powered stuff. Download that catalog. That catalog, if they wanted nine bucks for it, I'd pay them nine bucks for it. There's so much information there about solar systems. Even though it is a catalog and you can look through and buy stuff and things like that, the information, the specs, the, the, the backstories on all the equipment, excellent, excellent piece of, uh, of, uh, material to make sure you have part of your, as part of your preps. Next up today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals to me is the source for anything I need that I'm not growing in my backyard. 
Um, I do uh, have occasionally purchased some of the herbal preparations. They're absolutely outstanding. But we do a lot of things with herbs ourselves here. But there's times where we need something we don't have, where we need a larger volume of something we don't have. You name it. If, if, it's, if it's legal to sell and it's an herb, you can buy it from Western Botanicals, whether it's their, their you know, the full tilt um, stuff that they've put together or whether it's the individual whole herbs, or components like they have these menthol crystals that work really great in liniments for, for, for joint pain and stuff like that, or muscle pain. Those are almost impossible to find anywhere, the quality and the type that these guys have. Uh, so check out Western Botanicals. Remember, if you're in the Members Brigade, they have a discount membership program. It's $50 a year. You get 25% off every purchase. And if you're in the MSB, you get that free. All you have to do is make a phone call, and they'll set you up, and then every time you order, you get 25% off everything from Western Botanicals. Next up, make sure you're connecting with us. YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter have been doing a lot more YouTube stuff lately. I shot two videos over the weekend. I'm making Biltong. I'm not going to put those out until the third video is done. That'll help me stick to my guns and not eat all my Biltong before I finish the, uh, film the finished product. This time on uh, Biltong, what we're doing is we're actually using the Excalibur dehydrator for most of it. And I've got a few sticks of it hanging right behind me that I'm keeping myself from eating, uh, curing in my office. We'll talk about the difference in the time and the quality of the end product at the end of that. I'm doing this because a listener suggested it, said a neighbor who's from South Africa said, best Biltong he ever ate was some that he had made on his uh, Excalibur. I'll tell you what, I like the results so far. It's been on the Excalibur for about two days now. And it looks like Biltong that's been hanging up for about four to five. And uh, I, I think we're going to get exactly what I expected, which is two products that are almost identical in their finished state. One's going to take me eight to 14 days, and one's going to take me three to four days. Maybe five on the Excalibur. I have it set on the very lowest setting, so it's not even 95 degrees. It's, you know, because it's not even marked below that, but it's the lowest setting where I can turn it and it'll actually come on, but it's doing an outstanding job. It has some real advantages. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, stay connected with us. Next up, remember, support the show with the member support brigade. You do that $50 a year or $5 a month. That comes out to about 20 cents an episode. Two dimes every time I get on the air and blow it out for you. Uh, and remember, we're doing that special show. Check out the one-year anniversary show. Episode 550 is going to be like that. Need you to call in your stories uh, about what, it's, what, what prepping has meant to your life. 866-65-THINK. With that, let's go ahead and roll with your first question. I have a bunch of them today. I'm trying to do as many as I can in these shows. But the first one is uh, kind of hits uh, hits home for me. Or Actually, uh, no, I want to save that one till the toward the end. Um, no, the first one is about, uh, a guy's asking me a question here. Uh, his name's James, and he says, uh, how long does it take, roughly, for a national natural weather event that ruins crops to have an effect on food supplies and prices in the marketplace? So, we have a weather event that damages crops. How long does it take before we see the results as consumers, and how long before they see the results in the upper tiers of the distribution chain where the raw commodity price goes up? He also sends a link to an article that came out on September 18th, so this is almost a month ago on Fox News, this uh, crop failure in Canada. And here's what it basically says. It says that there was a frost that killed a lot of Canadian wheat in September, and this is definitely going to have an effect on the quality. It didn't really say a lot about the quantity, so I'm going to speculate here. I could be wrong about this. I do know that this this wheat that, that's been killed is not, being, it's not wheat that they expected to harvest tomorrow, right? This is wheat for the spring. 
and this wheat can actually handle the killing temperatures once it reaches a certain level of maturity. It's what we've been talking about a lot with fall gardening recently, that a lot of your plants that you put in the ground, like let's say spinach or uh, endive or certain lettuces, They'll do great. I mean, broccoli, all the brassias, cabbage, stuff like that. They'll do great in cold weather. They'll, they'll handle down into to frost temperatures. But when they're tiny, when they're young, they can be hit hard and, and, and die, die outright or not thrive and reduce quality. So I don't think all of the wheat was killed. What happened is some of the wheat was killed and a lot of it was stunted. So this crop is going to be set for harvest in the spring. This is spring wheat planted, spring wheat for harvest, not spring wheat for planting. And it just didn't get off to a good enough start. There was a lot of rain in Canada this year. The fields were too wet. They had to plant a little bit later. Then they got an early frost. These two things added up. But the question in general is just when anything like this happens anywhere, how long before we see the results? Well, a lot of that is dependent upon, you know, how severe the situation is and how big of a chunk it takes out of the global market. If we have, uh, you know, we lose 10% of uh, Iowa's corn crop, it has a bigger effect than if we lose 10% of, you know, California's corn crop. Because they grow different volumes of corn. They have a different place in the world market. And there's only so much that can be done to compensate. With wheat, um, you're going to see major spikes in wheat prices because it's not just Canada. Uh, there's been a big drought around the Black Sea. There's been fires in Russia. There's been problems with the wheat crop in Siberia. Wheat, you're going to see, there's actually problems with uh, some of the, the crops coming in now in, in Australia. So you're going to see wheat, wheat prices go up and continue to go up, and that's going to, of course, drive the prices up of everything made with wheat, which is tons of stuff that we buy and use every day. You're also going to see it's going to it's going to drive up the price of things with made with top quality wheat. So things like pasta, there's only certain wheat strains that can make you can even make pasta with. So how long does that take to hit us? Well, in this case, because it's a combined event, it's already started a little bit. In this case, because the dollar is weakening, uh, we're already seeing some of the effects of the commodity rise on itself. But there's two types of ways that commodities like wheat or corn or pork or anything else uh, are affected with, with monetary speculation in the free market. One is the actual time you're trying to buy the product and how much is available at the time you're trying to buy it, period, and that's it. The other is through the futures and options market, and what you're seeing is a big spike in futures on wheat and some other commodities right now with options expiring in the spring of next year where people are playing this. Those options will have some effect in the short term. And that's, you know, that's what happens is that this bad news comes out and the options traders come in and start playing the option a little bit long, six months out, saying we know that this, the glut is going to run out. And they either get it right or they get it wrong. Most of them will have exited their positions long before the potential for maximum profit, though. They'll let the suckers take the end. They'll just try to make 50, 60, 100% on their money playing the option in the first period. As the situation looks worse and worse, the option continues to rise. They'll exit their options and, and let somebody else hold the bag and take the risk whether it's either going to pay off right before the option end date uh, with, it, with, it, with them being right about the long play, or if it's wrong, then they'll take the loss. In the end, it really comes down to this, though. When anything happens to a crop, 
It's when is that crop supposed to be harvested and when is that crop supposed to get to the market. So with spring wheat in Canada, we're supposed to harvest that in the spring. It really starts pouring itself into the system in early summer for most of most of North America and the rest of the, the northern hemisphere. So that's when you'll really feel it. Now here's the problem. And this is something I don't think people understand about agricultural commodity shortages. Once that season is done, we're going all the way around again before we get an opportunity at another crop, you know, a fall harvest to kind of compensate for that. If we have a weakness in Australia coming into what would be fall and their spring, and that doesn't fill it back up, then we're going all the way back around to Canada. And I think there's a lot of agricultural crops in the world like that today where when we have a shortage, we might be a full season before the balance is restored. And even with one season, it doesn't completely restore the balance. It might take two seasons. So it's not just about price. It's about availability of certain things. Luckily, because we're such a wealthy nation, I guess you'd call it luckily for us, we tend to get first dibs at a lot of this stuff. So while we may see higher prices, what we need to not forget is there will be places in the world where they will see they won't have the grain. It won't be there. I think what you'll also see if you look historically... If wheat prices go up, so do soy, canola, corn, rice, all the other grains. Because as people are forced to switch from one grain to another to compensate, well, that puts a greater demand on what was forecast and what was grown, and that drives prices up. So what does this all mean? Higher food prices this spring. And higher food prices all the way until this spring, but a bigger shoot-up. Look for real spikes in the food costs with anything with, with grain in it, in the, in the spring this year into the late summer, very similar to what we saw with big spikes, 18%, uh, you know, first, first half of the year returns on your food storage in 2008. If you put food away on January 1, 2008, and you were still holding it in, on June 1, 2008, your average return on commonly bought items was about 18% that year. Look for the same thing this year. That's my, and that's speculation. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. This one's not a question, but it just goes to show something I've been saying that we're going to deal with. Everybody says, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people think I'm crazy, and people that talk like me are crazy. United States is the greatest nation under the sun, man. We're going to be here for a long time, that kind of thing. And I think we'll be here, but I think our place in the world is dramatically shifting into uh, more of a, a second-tier role, that we have a lot of emerging economies that are going to come out ahead of us. This article on uh, Yahoo Finance is called 10 Signs the U.S. is Losing Its Influence in the Western Hemisphere. And I'll put a link to this article and the articles about the wheat shortages and everything else I talk about in today's show notes. I want to read a little bit. I want to read you the intro of this, and then I'm just going to give you the 10 signs that they have. Uh, this is uh, provided by Business Insider, again, on Yahoo Finance. We won't be the alpha dog in the Western Hemisphere forever. Even if the U.S. hadn't crashed into a financial crisis, there are demographic, material, and political forces that have been spreading power around the Americas for decades. Brazil is the first among the BRIC, which is Brazil, Russia, India, and China, four economies that are supposed to overtake the, the six largest Western economies by 2032. So basically... The BRIC alliance is supposed to become the world leaders by 2032. I think they're going to do it, and maybe sooner. Mexico is the first among the Mavins. I've not heard this one before. 
Mexico, Australia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Nigeria, and South Africa, six economies we expect to blow away the expectations and become leading powers in the regions relatively soon. Canada and Venezuela are oil powers in the distant future. Peru and Chile are sitting on fortunes of metals and minerals. All of these countries are cranking up while America faces plenty of fiscal and demogra uh, dem demographic problems at home. Here are signs the U.S. is losing its influence in its own backyard. And I'm not going to read you the, the summaries, just the top line of each one. The world's richest man is now a Mexican, not an American. Three years after the U.S. financial crisis, Latin America is again growing rapidly, the U.S. not so much. Chile produces 300% more copper than America, the former leader in copper production. Brazil is now over four times, now produces over four times as much iron ore as the U.S. We used to lead that industry too. Canada and Venezuela will pass the U.S. in oil production in the next decade. Brazil exports over twice as much beef as we do. Brazil is now a critical partner for Russia, India, and China. Brazil, Canada, and Mexico all invest a greater share of GDP in clean energy. Hugo Chavez is still in power. That one might be a reach. Um, I think I skipped the very first one. Our most powerful regional ally, Brazil, refuses to follow our orders on Iran. Let me read you the little uh, snippet on that one. Hillary Clinton went to Brazil to beg support for sanctions against Iran and came away empty-handed. Now the UN is counting on Brazil, which is friendly with America and Iran, to lead nuclear diplomacy. The UN is putting Brazil between the United States and Iran as a, a, dip, a diplomat on negotiating with Iran about its nuclear um, production plans. I want to just go into a few of these for you, just to kind of think about this. Brazil is now exporting twice as much beef as we do. America used to lead the world in beef production. We're being out-beefed by Brazil. We're being, uh, we're being out-oil produced by Canada and Venezuela. And remember, their economies are growing, so they're going to use more of that oil that they're producing. We're going to become more and more dependent on foreign oil into the future. Um, and at the same time, Brazil, Canada, and Mexico are all investing a greater share of their money into clean energy. So they're getting themselves off of oil while they're producing oil. What's that going to free them to do? Sell the hell out of their oil to all the other people that need it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on in this article. I really recommend that you read it. I just want to kind of, once in a while, we need to stop and we need to look at this and we need to make sure we're not sitting on too much nationalistic arrogance. Trust me, I'm very proud to be an American. I feel very blessed that I was born in this country. I feel the one thing that we still have in this country over every other nation on the planet is our freedom. Our freedom to, to defend ourselves, to own property and everything else. I think there's more liberty in the United States today than there is anywhere else in the world. The problem is that there's been far too much liberty taking in this country. And if we don't draw a line in the sand with liberty, what are we going to have? I'll say that one more time. If we don't draw a line in the sand with liberty, what are we going to have? We're losing our status globally on everything else. And I know people think that's an overreach and it's not happening. It's happening. You're living in the middle of that change right now. Absolutely in the middle of that change. We are the wealthiest nation in the world, but right now we are holding all of our wealth, most of our wealth anyway, in paper, while the rest of the world is building their wealth around first and second order wealth. They're building it on mining. They're building it on commodities. They're building it on production. And we're trying to control 
the global economy. We're losing the ability to control that. We're losing the ability to control our own economy because we've overspent, we've overborrowed. Take a deeper look at this article and just make it a reason that you're preparing. Make it a reason that you're doing something so that if something really drops out the bottom here, we're able to take care of ourselves because, folks, I'm telling you, for a lot of us, there's not going to be anybody to pick the pieces up but us. We're going to have to do it for ourselves. Here's a really interesting one, one of these ones that makes you think, but it's also one of these ones that is going to kind of drive home what I've been saying about the death of the suburbs and people moving further into urban centers or further out from uh, urban centers into more rural environments. And it comes from Eric, different Eric. Eric says, could residing in a city offer the best chance for maintaining a standard of living for tough times? My reasoning, if you think about three possible areas to live, rural, suburban, and urban, if tough times context, most survivalists jump to rural as the best option. This is the most intuitive choice, but I find myself working through possible disaster scenarios. Residing in the countryside is also actually more detrimental to a standard of living than living in a city. Consider that resources such as food, police protection, job opportunities, energy, all delivered, concentrated, and consumed much more efficiently in cities. For example, if someone living in a city commutes to a city for work, an oil shortage makes this very expensive. However, a city dweller would be able to bike or use public transportation. Uh, if uh, I said transportation, not transportation, whatever that word that came out was, but use public transportation. If a country person has a job in a small town and they lose it, there are not nearly as many options for him compared to his city counterpart. Short of general nuclear war, some civilization-ending event. Does not have to go that far, man. Uh, I guess I don't see many advantages to countryside compared to the city. Certainly some advantage, but it seems like most likely problems would impact the average person in the country much worse than in the city. Anyway, I'm just curious of your thoughts. Thanks again for your time. I really enjoy your program and appreciate your hard work. Eric, it's not that you're wrong. You're just not also right. You're, we're, and it, there's no right or wrong here. There's varying levels of things, and something this complex can't be answered with yes or no. It's where are we at in a time stacking, right? Because all types of events run through time periods, and there's times when it's better one place and at times when it's better the other. But let's look at a few things. Number one, you move into the city, and I think a lot of people are going to do just what you said. That's part of my vacation, vacating the suburbs. Either the urban sprawl sprawls out into the suburbs and sucks them up, or the suburbs vacate and become kind of a belt around these urban areas where it's too close for people. They don't want to be there. It's too expensive to live there. Screw it. I'm out. I need more space. And as that frees up, then that space becomes more urban in of itself. And those people are not going into those cities every day. And uh, that puts more people on the country. Because even if 80% go in, 20% go out, 20% of the suburbs going out to rural property is a hell of a lot more people. But let's think about a couple different things here. One, you say that since there's more resources in the city, there's greater concentration of people will be better off. Let me put it to you this way. New York City... Uh, with its surrounding boroughs, in the next 10 years, will probably reach a population of about 10 million people. 10 million, all right? Now, if there's a 10% shortfall, that's a million people that have to do without. Or probably, more likely, 30 million people that have to be cut back to half of what they've come to expect. And the wealthier people are able to buy up the surplus. Maybe 40%. 
That's four million pissed off people. That's four, and the, the poorest of the poor, the lower 10%, are going to do worse than the people that are, say, at the 40th percentile. So that's a million pissed off people that see everybody else around them as a target. We go out into a small town, 10,000 people, there's a 10% shortfall. That's actually really easy to divide up among most of those 10,000 people, and everybody does with a little bit less and pulls together. Let's look at another fact. This is absolutely fact. When someone is on the run from the law, when they successfully hide, they generally successfully hide in a place like Chicago or Atlanta or New York. Why? Because a stranger walking around the streets of New York City or Chicago doesn't turn a single head. Nobody goes, who's that? Who is that guy? I've never seen him before. Are you kidding? Have you been in New York City? You know? Or even someplace like Jacksonville. I mean, you could have a stranger walking through an area where a lot of people do know each other, still aren't going to even no notice the guy. There's too many people. Small town. You walk through Minersville, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and no one knows who you are. Every head is going, who is that? Not necessarily like you're doing anything wrong, but they're paying attention to you. You know what this means? This means in a crisis situation that... Most people are known, and that means people know who the guys are that they have to look out for, who those people are with the, the negative tendencies in the first place. They also know when strangers show up, and in a crisis situation where people start to pull together, those strangers are going to be much easier to identify and either go, okay, they're here to help, they're here to fit in, and we have room or we don't. There's just so many more things that we can keep a lid on in a small-town environment. The big one, though, is do you understand that these cities like New York – Dallas, the one I live in right now, we, cities like ours are getting water from 200, 300 miles away through underground piping systems. Some of the water being pumped in New York is actually destroying land, destroying houses over top of these pipes. These pipes are so old, they're leaking, the water's seeping up through the ground. Now, the water's not polluted, it's clean drinking water. But you know what happens when water starts seeping up into your basement of your house that's 100 years old? Your house starts to sink into the ground. There's potential for some of these places to start saying, hey, you're going to have to pay a lot more for this water, we're going to have to fix this infrastructure, or you're going to have to do without. And as more and more people go, and they keep trying to pull more and more water into these cities, cities like New York, cities in the West, like Phoenix, like Los Angeles, they're going to deal with water shortages. Again, in a rural environment, it's much easier to do things like individuals capturing a portion of their own rainwater. You can live wherever you want. But here's the problem. In the short term, you can be right to a degree, as long as things are going on the way they are. As we get into severe resource depletion, and you have highly concentrated populations, and they start to experience the resource depletion, you have a mob. You have a mob of millions. It's the numbers of people themselves that are the danger in a crisis. In a rural environment where there's not those numbers of people, it's much easier to keep a lid on society. It's much easier for people to band together in a minor way because of a minor crisis or a major way because of a major crisis. I'm not saying that you know moving to a city is wrong. I'm telling you it's not for me and some of the reasons why and why the, uh, the belief that's out there today that it might be a better option is largely misguided. Because it's being championed by people that want it to happen. 
I mean, that's what you have to realize. Whenever you get information from somebody, you know, where do you get the information from and how do they benefit it if it happens? These cities want to grow. They want people moving into them. They want businesses coming into them. And there is a huge move by the environmental whack jobs, believe it or not, to move everybody into cities. The environmentalists want to move people into highly dense populated cities. They think this is better for the environment because they're misguided, because they're so focused on what? CO2 and global warming is going to kill us all. Instead of worrying about the actual output of true pollution, they're worried about what we exhale. And in spite of the fact that cows farting have a bigger effect on the planetary temperature than CO2, doesn't matter to them. They've been sold a bill of goods. And this is all about, you know, hey, we're going to reduce carbon emissions so people can walk and ride bicycles. Reduce dependence on foreign oil because people can walk and ride bicycles. What we have to remember is with decentralized communications, most people could do their jobs as easily in the country or the city without going anywhere. They could stay home and do them, especially the types of jobs that we're doing in America. And cities are not the greatest places in the world for manufacturing jobs in the first place. They're the ones that take it the hardest uh, when a, a manufacturer fails. So the manufacturing that is left is better off in these slightly outside the area, you know, these small towns to mid-sized towns, and the individual doesn't need to be in the city anymore. He just simply does not. And if people are doing more to provide for themselves, then they are less dependent on transportation in the first place. But the big one that you're right about is if I live in the city, I live in a suburbs, I have to drive the city back and forth every day, and I'm going to keep that city job, and they won't let me decentralize myself, then yeah, it's going to gravitate and pull me in. It's going to pull a lot of people in. That's a big part of what's driving what I've been saying, but it ain't for me. And I don't really think it's the best option. Uh, let's take another one. Okay, more news on the GMO front. I told you two years ago, two and a half years ago when I started this show, and I was talking about GMO corn and GMO soybeans, and I said the problem with GMOs is they're not going to stop. They're going to GMO everything. And some people said, Jack, they're just trying to feed the planet. You know, come on, they're not going to GMO everything. You're an alarmist. Well... Now we're GMOing silkworms. This comes from Nick. Nick sent me an e, uh, a link uh, that was on Fast Money, but that link doesn't seem to be working anymore. It was when he sent it. So I found another story about the same thing uh, on the register. And uh, the title of the article is, New GM Worms Mean Large-Scale Spider Silk Production. Scientists in India have announced the success in producing a genetically modified abomination-style combo creature, which is part spider and part silkworm. They believe their creation will be handy in the production of next-generation bulletproof vests, among other things. The cunning thing about the new arachno worms is they can produce spider silk, one of the strongest fibers known as science, while not actually being spiders. It maintains the difficulty of farming spiders. Uh, it's mainly the difficulty of farming spiders for their silk that has prevented the super stuff from being widely used. So basically, you can read the rest of the article. I'll put a link to it, but here's the deal. We would love to use spider silk to do all kinds of things. Because pound for pound, it is probably the strongest substance known on the planet. It's amazing what a tiny, few micron thick piece of spider silk can do. Far more strong than what a silkworm produces. But silkworms can be easily farmed, and they produce tons and tons and tons of fiber. So what do we do? We take a silkworm and a spider, and we mix some stuff up, and we use some viruses to take some DNA and transmit the DNA from one creature to the other, and we get a silk spider, basically a, sp a, a spider worm. I don't know what you would call this thing, but it will produce you know, buckets and buckets and buckets of spider silk for us. 
Is this one a real danger? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, there's so many things that have gotten out by accident, like Africanized honeybees that have crossbred with honeybees in the United States and produced these very aggressive strains of bees. When in Africa, the African honeybee is nowhere near the problem that the Africanized honeybee here is. It's when the two species melded that we started to have this really, truly crazy aggressive strain. In Africa, they used those bees for honey. It wasn't like somebody said, oh, these bees try to kill you. Let's bring them over here and put them here. No, it was like these bees are extremely resilient, and they produce a lot more honey uh, in, in tougher circumstances. If we bring them over, then we'll have African honeybees, and we'll get all of that benefit here in the New World. And then some of the bees, you know, left because they fly. And when they left, they, they started doing what animals do. And when a queen flew away, it wasn't necessarily that the new queen attracted a swarm of, uh, of her own type. Maybe she attracted a swarm of North American honeybees and then, or South American honeybees. And then we ended up with this crossbreed and we ended up with this problem. So that's the potential there. I don't think that you're going to wear a, 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 a bulletproof vest made of spider silk and the GMO is going to get you. I mean, that's, that's craziness. That is going too far. Maybe, maybe this is a legitimate use of a GMO. But it does show what I've been saying. They're not going to stop. You can read the article if you want. Of all the things they're doing with genetically modified organisms, this one is on the lower tier of worrying me. But I worry what happens when these things get out. What do they do? What do they eat? You know, I mean, silkworms have been successfully farmed for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Uh, it's a pretty established operation. They know what to do with them. Do these things, re are these, these hybrids, do they reproduce? I don't know. The article doesn't say that. If they don't reproduce, if they're sterile hybrids, again, not saying it's a good thing, but boy, it might be a little bit less scary than the fact that, you know, everything you're eating today off a store shelf has probably got GMO corn in it. I mean, that's, that, that bothers me a little bit more. But yeah, they're not going to quit. They're going to GMO everything they can. This is the new boom uh, of the millennium, is genetically modified things. And the problem is we're not setting any ethical boundaries. And I'm not somebody that's, you know, a big, you know, um, I'm not going to throw my Bible in your face about this or anything like that. Um, I do think, though, that we've never had a serious discussion over where the line in the sand is with this stuff. We've never set any kind of a, of a national standard. We've certainly never set any kind of a global standard. I'm not a globalist, God, you know that. But isn't there some point where we say, you know, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't just do this type of thing. Maybe we shouldn't destroy people's livelihoods by making them addicted to these, these things uh, financially and making them indebted to us. Maybe we shouldn't do this with things that have the potential to get out of the biosphere and reproduce. Maybe we should limit what level of production we test with a new GMO before we go across the board with it. Maybe there's some limit that we should rationally... I mean, even I, I think it's more than we should give up, but even in, in the world where everybody says this stuff is safe, if you believe it's safe, don't you think there's some level of control that should be over this, where this stuff is basically running rampant in every walk of life? It's another reason to grow things for yourself and take control of your own life. Um, next one comes from Steve. Steve says, How our preps helped a friend. In brief, my wife and I are both school teachers. We have two young boys. We recently bought a home with a four-sevenths down payment. Hey, good for you. Um, otherwise we're debt free our preps have been slow because she doesn't see the point uh, that's 
common. Yesterday evening, a friend came by in tears. She was recently fired and could either pay her rent or eat. I went to her pantry and I pulled out three to four weeks of basic food for her and was able to make another person's life better. My wife is now beginning to see why I've been copycanning and stocking up on cheap things like pasta and peanut butter. I have been listening since about episode 190. I love it. Keep it up. Steve uh, in Colorado. Um, yeah, and here's a couple things. One, spirit of giving. Thank you. Thank you for helping someone else. Because you probably just taught this other person how to prep when they get back on their feet. So they won't come to you in tears again. And if there's a disaster, they'll be able to take care of themselves. So there's one less person out there competing for what's available. Again, preppers don't hoard. We prevent hoarding. What we do is not hoarding, folks. When we put all this extra food away, we're doing it at a time when people can have all they want right now. We're doing it for the day where people can't have all they want. We won't be out there competing for those resources. Two, you just woke your wife up to it. And the next conversation is, honey, I want you to think about this. Um, we probably think our jobs are so secure because we're teachers. Because being a teacher, let's face it, one of the most secure employment positions available uh, in America today. You know what, guys? The Dallas School District let go over a thousand teachers in the past two years. A thousand. I know teachers in a lot of places that have lost jobs recently. They've scaled back schools. And they can get a job, but they can't get a job in that nice, pretty suburb that they've come accustomed to. They're going to have to go to these inner city schools that they don't really want to. And that means lower pay and longer commutes because they generally don't want to move into the area. Sometimes it means completely disrupting their lives. My point is a teacher's job is not necessarily as secure as maybe teachers have been led to believe that it is. Um, I do think teacher unions overreach, and it's more secure than it should be. Because if you're a crappy teacher, you should be a fired teacher. I'm not putting these guys down. I'm sure they're great teachers. But the conversation is we could lose our jobs too. We could have massive cutbacks on a budget. They might not fire all the teachers. They might just say everybody's taking a 20% pay cut, and the teacher's union can hold its breath and say, we'll strike, and I might say, go ahead. Because we don't have money. We don't have it. Okay, it's gone. It's not there. Can't get blood from a stone. You want to strike? Strike. Go ahead. We'll shut the school down for a couple weeks until you guys get hungry. Even if you get your way in the end, how long might you go on strike? You know, and teachers aren't the most highly paid people in the world. So the, the, the whole point here is, Steve, you need to tell your wife, that could have been us. It's not just that we were able to help somebody else. We could have been the ones with that decision. Do we pay our mortgage payment, even though it's low because we've saved a lot of money, um, do we, you know, do we do nice things with the kids? Do we have money for things like electricity or, you know, do we pay our mortgage payment? Or if we do those things, do we get to still eat? The same thing could have happened to you and the same solution would have been right in front of you. And I think that's a big lesson. And uh, one, again, thank you for helping someone out. I appreciate that. And two, thanks for sharing that because I think it'll hit home with people. And folks, when you have the reluctant spouse, tell the stories. Hey, I heard about this family, a couple teachers in Colorado, and here's what happened. It's easier to tell people stories than try to convince them of things. This is just what happened. They ended up, they didn't need it. You're right, they didn't need it at all. But they had a friend that was deeply in need. They were able to help because they were prepared. Now they're slowly restocking what they had for themselves. If they need it for themselves, it'll be there. If they need it to help somebody, it'll be there. Stories are a huge way to help other people see the need for things like this. Uh, the next one comes to me from Josh. Josh says, 
Um, hi, Jack. I just uh, I want to thank you for your great show. I bought five acres in a subdivision by Palm Daytar Lake in Missouri. My neighbor's house looks like a junkyard. That's part of the uh, living in the country experience sometimes. So I'm going to plant trees near the property line to block out the view. My dad suggested some kind of pines that grow fast, but I wondered if you had any ideas for something use useful that would grow fast and block out the view. My land has a lot of oak and hickory trees, but I want something with lower branches by the property. Thanks a lot. Josh, um, here's what I would suggest. Hazelnuts, filberts, however you want to call them. Uh, grown into a hedge, uh, planted very densely to where you actually are going to create a living fence, but your living fence will produce food. Uh, hazelnuts are great to eat. They spread like mad. Uh, maybe you don't even plant them initially at the density that you need to, but as they start to spread, they actually send out root systems that, that spring up elsewhere with runners. And uh, you can very quickly, and when I say quickly, I mean two, three, four years, grow a, a filbert hedge that'll be not only a view blocker, but if you plant with enough density, it's actually a fence that would keep animals in or, or, and people out. Uh, it's probably one of the great fences that you could grow in your area. You're cool enough that they should do okay for you there. Uh, another option would be um, horse apple hedge. Or uh, what's the other name for them? Uh, horse apples is one thing. Uh, Osage orange. Uh, both of those are common names for... Um, I won't go with the Latin name because I can't remember it right now, but even if I did, you wouldn't remember it anyway because it's not that interesting. But it actually means apple-bearing yellow wood is, is what the uh, Latinic name for Osage Orange is. But they say it makes you know a fence that's bull-strong and hog-tight. And there's a pretty interesting article in Mother Earth News about using it for that. Um, it's a great hedge, and it would pr definitely provide a good view blocker. Four years, you've got a tight hedge. You could probably get uh, the apples or oranges, however you want to call them, by driving around someplace where they're already growing and getting a bunch of them. And now's a good time to do that. Throw them in a bucket over winter, get the seeds out, plant them in the spring, and uh, you can you can plant those like crazy out there. You can also combine things. You know, you could do part filberts and part Osage orange, what, what have you. The problem with Osage orange is you're going to have those things falling on the ground every year. They spread like crazy. They're going to have to be trimmed more often. They grow a lot taller if you don't want them to grow too tall. Uh, they're thorny, and they produce something that's not really that useful for you. Now, you can cosmos them and cut them every few years and, and get a lot of great wood out of them. They're excellent for fence posts. They probably are the longest living fence posts you could put up. Uh, they'll go, some, some of those things have been in the ground for close to 50 to 100 years, and they haven't rotted yet. So you could use it for that. But, you know, they're not good eating. Where filberts would provide you with sustenance. Um, you know, filberts, again, filberts or hazelnuts, however you want to call them. Uh, they actually make a really good grain substitute. They make a great high-protein flour when they're ground. Uh, they're like an acorn that tastes good without going through all the crap that it takes to make an acorn taste good. You don't have to worry about the bitter tannins on the outside of a hazelnut. Uh, it's it's very, very mild in tannin, even though it has that brown coating. I mean, they're great crack and just eat. So you've got a real opportunity there to put in kind of a living hedge. And there's a lot of things you could do with that. You could go in and put... 
You know, I mean, really, you could, if you want, if it's the sun works for you this way, you could go in and put a row of fruit trees right on the property line or just a little bit on your side of it, come in front of there and do your hazelnut hedge and come in front of your hazelnut hedge with smaller herbal plantings and kind of seven layer permaculture it out. Uh, do some berry plantings and gooseberries and, and currants and other things like that in there. And you could really create something beautiful in front of that junkyard, but very, very highly productive. But for just a flat out hedge, Hazelnuts uh, for an edible one, Osage Arms for the most resilient and quickest growing one in your area. Uh, let's take another question. Um, this is an interesting one. It's on water privatization. It's from Brittany. Brittany says, hey, I'm a brand new listener. Love the show. What are your thoughts on privatizing water on a global scale? Do you think the free market can offer a solution to the global water shortage we're facing? This morning, my husband came across an article from Newsweek regarding privatization of water and the global water shortage. It offered a great deal of interesting information and insight on the subject. Honestly, I hope that a lot of people read this article and wake up the problems we're facing regarding water consumption, but I seriously doubt uh, they'll turn off the Kardashians to read the news article. Hero of the week for saying to turn the Kardashians off. My wife watched, my wife watched like three hours of that crap this, uh, this Sunday. I wanted to drill a hole through my head with my DeWalt drill with that crap on. Uh, here's the link, and it's a Newsweek article. I'll put a link to the article. It's a very long article. It's like four pages, uh, even on the Internet, you know, page one, page two, page three, page four. Uh, and you really should take a look at this article. But uh, let me kind of summarize what they're saying. First, it starts out with the fact that there's these, uh, this, this town up in Alaska with this gloriously beautiful glacial lake. And they're now loading up tankers with, or they're going to soon be loading up uh, tankers, the kind that would normally be used to haul oil, to haul water, and sell them to different parts around the world. And there's all these different places around the world that are water poor, that, that these smaller municipalities that have these huge lakes for a, a town with a few thousand people in it, and that water's a huge, huge store of wealth for them. And because of their remoteness or what have you, or ecological reasons, there's no pipeline so that they can sell that water to a, you know, to a, a bigger city. Like, you know, sell it to, you're not going to sell it to Anchorage because they have plenty of water. So that's, you know, the closest nearby big city, if you want to call Anchorage a big city. Um, and then all in around Canada and all. So you just have a pipeline all the way down to the southern United States. It's actually less costly to put it onto a tanker and ship it. Uh, at that point, and there's just so much to deal with that being international, going from one nation to another and back to the same nation, just isn't really practical. So they're shipping this water around the world. And then the bigger question is, do we go to a, a world where all the water is privately owned? Do we privatize the water system? They talk about Bolivia, the way it became kind of a plot line in a James Bond movie, but what really happened in Bolivia was that um, big multinational corporations like Bechtel went in there, And the World Bank and convince Bolivia, privatize your water. Uh, that'll make uh, water profitable in Bolivia. That'll bring companies in and uh, they'll invest in the infrastructure and that'll give you, over, you know, a growing economy and then we can loan you money. So Bolivia signed on, privatized their water. Prices of water doubled. The people revolted. They ended up throwing the multinationals out. The, the worst among them was Bechtel. Uh, in the, the defense of the people that went in there and it took over the water system, the private companies. They want, they had to put a huge investment in infrastructure and they said we got to raise the price to pay for the infrastructure investment. The problem with that is that, and here's the big problem, and they finally get to it in the article. Privatizing water doesn't work, in my opinion. There are, there are a few things that should be 
public property, if you want to call it that. This should be the property of all involved. And those can be broken down to public properties in certain regions, and if a region's rich in a resource, the region itself can export some of that resource out and bring that money back in to improve the region itself. It should be some level of collective wealth. And I know that that probably scares a lot of you guys, and has Jack become a globalist or a socialist? And no. Water is freely available. It is something we cannot do without, and we can't do without it. And it is, it's there. It's there for us to use responsibly. The problem with privatizing it is that if I'm Jacko and I bid for the water rights to a lake and I win the water rights to that lake and I own the water rights to that lake, I go through that bidding process once. And I might own the water rights there for 50 or 100 years. And now I have a virtual monopoly. And once enough of the water is collectively taken up by private industry, we can jack the prices up anywhere we want because where are you going to go to get some other water? Well, you can't. It's not like any other commodity out there. I mean, if I don't provide you with corn, well, there's a billion places growing corn, and you can grow your own. You can't really make water. Now, if you live in a place with a, you know, a reasonable rainfall, you can collect water. If you don't live in a state that prohibits you from freaking doing it, which is asinine, by the way. You know all these places like in Colorado and New Mexico where they don't let people catch rainwater off the roof? Most of that water never ends up. In, in the, the public water system anyway. It's lost, and it causes erosion. It's the worst thing they could do. But if you don't live there, and you don't live somewhere like the desert, right? you can collect enough water to do whatever you need with, but what about the people that aren't you? Now their water's held hostage. The other thing is, because it's a need, water is a need, not a want, the free market has only a limited control over use. Because if you triple my water rates, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's just not. And for most of middle America, it's not. We're not happy about it. Now, some of you live in places where water rates are really high already. Tripling them would be bad for you. Some of you in certain parts of California and things like that. But most of the rates you're paying for water aren't really water rates. They're taxes and fees and bullshit that your local economies put on there trying to do in the name of doing green bullshit or something like that. But the reality... I mean, I don't know what our water bill is is a month. I don't even that's not even a bill I focus on. My wife just pays it. I think it's somewhere around thirty bucks, and I think that includes the sewer part portion. You know, we pay. I think one day I, I said, "What do we pay for sewer?" She was like, "It was like five bucks." I said, "That's the best five bucks we ever spent." She said, "Why?" I said, "What the hell would we do with it if they didn't take it away for us?" You know, and I think the public water system in large works really well, but what doesn't work right now is infrastructure. Our water infrastructure throughout the United States is crumbling. We have all kinds of things, especially our sewers, because it's less obvious to us that there's a problem. You know, if there's a crack in a water line, our pressure goes down or we have no water, or we end up having to boil our water. If there's a crack in a sewer line, the sewage just leaks into the earth. And until we see it come out somewhere, we're like, eh, whatever. I don't know. I flush the toilet, it goes. But both of those systems have immense problems right now, and we're going to have to invest in them. But is privatizing them the way to, to make the investment go there? No. It's we're pissing away so much money into our government right now. How about we take some of the money we're pissing away, and instead of building tunnels for turtles, we fix our infrastructure? We need about a $30 billion. Uh, I think that's the number. Let me check how wrong was I. In this article on page 3, it says the Obama administration has secured a $6 billion uh, piece of money for repairs that the EPA estimates will cost $300 billion. 
We need $300 billion to go into our water infrastructure. Um, anybody thinking maybe that trillion dollars worth of stimulus money would have went a lot further if we did invest in things like our actual infrastructure they said it was going to be for? Highways, water, all these different things. Instead of, you know, improving mouse habitat for Nancy Pelosi's district, turtle tunnels in Florida, guardrails for a dam that's never going to be built. We, we squandered that money. I don't want to get too political here, but we did. My point? That we could fix this. There's plenty of places where we're wasting money. And if they say it's going to cost $300 billion, I bet you the place for privatization in our water system is an infrastructure. Let people bid for it. Open the bids up. You know, don't give my minority preference. Don't give small company preference. Don't do backdoor deals. Don't, you know, have one hand wash the other. Don't limit it to like three companies that you think are qualified to do it. Let people really bid to do the work. You know, there's a lot of things about foreign companies coming in here and buying stuff up. I don't care if a foreign company bids on coming in and doing the work that you're going to use American labor. You want to come in and manage it? Fine. Come on, do it. We're bringing it on. Let's bring everybody to the table. Let's give everybody an equal shot at the work. As long as they're qualified to do the work. And let's not have them bid to do the state of Texas. Let's have them bid project by project. You know, five new miles of infrastructure, what have you. You pull it off, we'll give you more. We'll let you go to the next level on the bidders list. You don't pull it off, eh, we mitigated our losses. We pull somebody else in that can do it to clean up your mess. I bet we could push that $300 billion down to $200 billion like that. Probably down to $150 billion like that. Because governments always overestimate the cost of things. When they say they need the money, when they're going to spend the money, that's when they flip it around, right? When they say we need money, they say, well, we need $200 billion. What do we tell them? Tell them $300 Right? And they say, okay, well, we're going to do this now. What's it going to cost? Uh, it's probably going to cost us like $500 billion. Tell them $250. Where are we going to get the rest? Well, once we're in the middle of $250, they are going to have to come up with the rest. Right? And it's also all this backdoor shady bullshit. So, no, I'm not for privatizing water around the world. I think it's privatizing life. And we don't privatize life. I think there, if there is a, there's a few things on this planet that we should all be able to have a right to access to because we're humans and we're alive. Air and water, definitely. All right, let's go ahead and take the next one. Uh, Jack, I have, this is from Frank. I have a 2-kilowatt grid-tie-only solar, solar vo- photovoltaic system. The system is grid-tie-only, so it doesn't provide any solar backup. Prepping wasn't on our radar when we installed the system seven years ago. How would you proceed in trying to develop a solar backup system given our existing solar system? We'll be in our current home for at least another 10 years. We don't want to spend a bunch of money on another inverter for our existing photovoltaic system. Thanks in advance. Well, it should be relatively easy, but I can't tell you it's going to be relatively cheap. Your biggest expense in this is going to be batteries. Uh, what you should be able to do is figure out how much battery backup you want, how much you know you want to have, and then price the batteries that you're going to need to put in there. You should be able to basically add a charge controller, and you should be able to take your um, your DC current off your your, your photo uh, your, your panels now that's going AC to the grid, you should be able to use, just pull out that inverter and still use it. You should be able to take your batteries with a charge controller and attach to your battery backup system. You should be able to then take that that inverter and move it to the output side of your batteries as long as it's sufficient to do the job. You might need a new inverter if you depending on the battery bank size, right? 
Then you take your, your inverter and you have that hooked up in a grid-tied manner. Um, and, and you might need another component, depending on what type of inverter you have and what it does, to allow it to fall over to battery use, but it shouldn't be that way. And then what should happen is, for however long it takes, your, photo, your, your panels are going to charge your battery system, and once the batteries are fully charged, they'll begin releasing energy based on... So basically it'll be like filling up a bucket with a spigot at the top, right? So your batteries will fill up from the bottom, and when they reach the top, they'll start to spill over. And every bit of electricity you produce in your, your photo panels that beyond the full capacity of those batteries will spill out and either backfeed the grid if you're not using much electricity or supplant your cost as it's doing now. It should function exactly the same way. It's just like putting a catch bucket in between so that you pull off the reserves for a time. Now, depending on how big of a backup system you put in, it might take several days or several weeks for those batteries to fully charge based on the solar activity. I mean, again, it depends on you got a two-kilowatt system, how, how much sun is shining, what time of the year do you do the installation, what have you. But once the power drops, you should have the full duration of those batteries available, and then whatever level two-kilowatt system gives you to continuously go on for a long term. I think it is probably definitely worth the investment of the upgrade. I would get whoever did the installation for you in, in the first place in there to, uh, to talk about it with you, and I would look at minimizing costs. If you, let's say you need a different inverter. It's not you need two inverters. It's not like you need one to do one thing and one. You only need one inverter, but you need a different inverter. See what you can sell your existing inverter t uh, to somebody for. There's all kinds of installations going on out there right now. Any piece of equipment you'd have to replace, what can you get for it on the secondary market? Maybe it's only 20 or 30% of what you pay for, but it still offsets the cost of new equipment. So it ain't cheap. It's not something you can just flip a switch and make happen. But again, I think your biggest investment is going to be in good quality batteries uh, to, to work with your existing system. You may find... Um, that you're better off just adding more panels on a cost basis, right? It may be far less expensive with your system to, you know, throw some more panels up on the roof, generate more electricity. But again, you don't have backup and you don't have resiliency if the lights go off. So those are, those are some of the systems that you're going to have to deal with. The other thing you're going to have to do is make an appraisal of what you will not be able to run. You know, when the power goes off, you ain't going to run a stove for very long. I don't care what you do, an electric stove or electric central heat. Those two things are just, they're not doable. So if you want resiliency, hopefully you already have gas or something like that. If you don't, you may have to look at that. But there you go. It should not be a new, it should not be a second inverter anyway. Maybe a new one. Depends on what you actually have in place. Um, this one comes from Eric, the Eric that sends me like 10 things a week, and some of them are so kick-ass he gets on twice a show. Uh, this one says, uh, Jack, here's another story about how China is taking over. This one is closer to home for you in Texas. Uh, let me read this one to you. This is close to home for me in Texas, and it just keeps proving what I've been saying. This is, Folks, this is not something I want to be right about. I so want to be proven wrong about the fact that China is taking over the world, that the U.S. is losing our position of dominance, that we're having to go abroad for more and more help to do things that we used to do on our own. But let me just read it to you. China by China Chinese by a by third of Chesapeake South Texas field. China that's a weird way they wrote this headline. Chinese by third of Chesapeake South Texas field. Um, Dallas on the AP. Uh, China state-owned offshore oil and gas company has bought 
a one-third interest in 600,000 acres that Chesapeake Energy leases in South Texas oil and gas field. Uh, let me read the most important part of this again to you, uh, the very first part. China's state-owned. That means the nation of China. Not a Chinese company. The nation of China bought a one-third interest in 600,000 acres the Chesapeake Energy leases in South Texas as an oil and gas field. Um, CNOOC Limited, I guess that's their ticker symbol, uh, Oklahoma City-based Chesapeake uh, announced a deal with up to, yeah, it's Chesapeake's ticker symbol, worth up to $2.16 billion Sunday in the Eagle Ford Shale project between Laredo and San Antonio. A joint statement says uh, that Ch Chesapeake will pay, uh, oh, the, that's the Chinese company's symbol, the CNNOC Limited, uh, will pay Chesapeake $1.08 billion in cash at the closing and share 75% of Chesapeake's drilling and completion costs up to another $1.08 billion. Chesapeake expects to produce 400 to 500,000 of barrels of oil equivalent per day at the project peak. Remember what happens after the peak. For Chesapeake, the deal provides capital put towards drilling and other aspects of Eagle Ford operation. For its part, Sinook, uh, we'll call him that, is looking to tap into the expertise that Chesapeake has used to cheaply tap reserves of oil and gas buried deep in rock shell formation. Chesapeake has entered into similar deals with other foreign oil and gas companies like Startoil of Norway and Total of France. You can read the rest of the article for yourself. Here's the point. I, I don't think people really understand the point here. The Chinese did not come in and buy 600,000 acres in Texas. They didn't even buy a third of 6,000 acres in Texas. Chesapeake doesn't own that land. They're leasing it. So it's not that bad. It's not like China just bought a huge piece of Texas the size of the King Ranch. Um, what China did is bought rights to the commodity coming out. But the bigger issue is why did they have to? Why, why did Chesapeake have to turn to the Chinese? You think Chesapeake, like all the guys sitting in Chesapeake said, I know what we'll do. We'll phone up China. We'll say, hey, China, how about you give us a couple trillion dollars and help us, help us do this? You think it was their first choice, going to China? I mean, even, you know, you think they would have went back to France or Norway before they went to China? A little bit easier to deal with the French or the Norwegians, you know, nicer guys, a little less, uh, socialistic, a little less, uh, a little less, uh, a little less demanding of a partner, you know, just a little bit. But no, they went to China. Don't you think they would have really rather had, like, America put their money in this? Don't you think they would have, you know, maybe they first went to venture capital? You know, you don't go to a venture capitalist for a trillion dollars, though, folks, do you? I mean, you need a major infusion here to get this done. Um, not a trillion dollars, a billion dollars. You know, venture capitalists don't dump out a billion dollars. This is a $2 billion investment. Uh, guarantee of 1.08, 1 billion, just call it 1 billion, and, 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 a, and a, a promise of up to another billion based on what has to happen to go forward. $2 billion. Don't you think they would have liked to phone up a local bank and got that $2 billion here in America? Now, you don't phone up a local bank for that, but you get my point. In America, we have principally funded programs like this ourselves because we want the profit. Capitalism is dying in America. That's what this means. The Chinese are better capitalists than us. They can come up with $2 billion to do this with easily. We could too, but we won't do it anymore. When I say capitalism is dying, I don't mean small business. I don't even mean mid-sized business, though we're getting choked out. I don't even mean huge corporations. I mean the capitalism that gets things done. 
the capitalism that builds roads, the capitalism that you know runs tollways, the capitalism that handles importation and exportation, the capitalism that pulls oil and gas out of the ground. It's dying. We still have people that can do it. We have the expertise. We don't have the money. Or we're not willing to put the money there. We're not willing to put the risk there anymore. Why would we be? I mean, haven't we demonized the oil and gas producers, like, massively? Why would the average American, American put their money into oil and gas today? Because they're so evil. We've had to drag the Exxon executives in front of, you know, Congress and, and ask them how much money they make and, and all these, these awful things. I don't like the fact that my state, with huge reserves of oil and gas, just had to turn to China, put our hands together like a beggar, and say, could we please have $2 billion to get this oil out of the ground? I don't like it at all, but I'm not surprised. Things are changing in the world today, folks, and it's not all for the better. There's a lot of hope left. There's a lot of things that we can do. I've never seen my nation as a nation that should be telling everybody else how to live in the first place. In spite of the fact that I don't want to privatize water, I'm at heart a libertarian in you know, 99% of all walks of life. I'd like to see most things in the hands of private citizens rather than government. I'd like to see a much smaller government. And I'd like to see a lot less influence of America around the world. The problem is, when you've done something the way we have big, changing that role is going to be painful for a lot of people involved. And a lot of things we've come to take for, for granted just aren't going to be there. The time to prep is now. I'm not telling you that the road warrior scenario is around the corner. In fact, you know me. I, I'm more likely to tell you that's not likely to happen. What I'm telling you is, as we look around the world and we look around our own nation, we have a lot of things going on. We have crumbling infrastructure. We have cities and places where they're not sustainable just from a water standpoint alone. We have crop failures around the world. We have scientists that are genetically tampering with the genetic code. We have a nation hell-bent on taking liberty from its own people. We have a nation that has been the world leader in just about everything you could come up with, losing those positions one by one by one. And we have a public, a population that in general doesn't care because they're too busy, like somebody said today, watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, watching Trash TV. They're not paying attention. They're not alarmed. They're not doing anything. Everything will be just stinking fine. Everything's not going to be fine. In the end, everything might end up being okay, but it's not going to be fine. Because fine means I don't have to change the temperature of the water in my pool. Fine means I can still climb my ass into that car I can't afford and drive to the place that I can't afford to spend my money at and whip out the MasterCard. Fine is not the future. Future is a change, a big change, an adjustment. I hope you're prepared for it. I'm doing everything I can to be prepared for it. I can't say I'm 100% prepared for it. I, I gather that very few of you can either. I'm not running off to live in the middle of nowhere. I'm not jumping ship and going to another country. I'm staying right here to wear it with you, to fight it with you, to do everything I can to remain a productive part of my nation. I believe in my nation. I love my nation. But I'm very sad for my people. I'm very sad that so many people are squandering what so, so many people work so hard to give us.
Don't let it happen to you. Because it, it all comes down to individual choice. You have a right to so many things. And you're lucky to live in a nation where at least most of those rights are still paid lip service to and the government is commanded to make sure that you have those rights protected. They don't grant you them, they protect them. But as I've said before, every right has an equal responsibility along with it. You want a right to freedom, you have a responsibility to be vigilant. You want a right to self-defense, you have a responsibility to know how to provide that to yourself. You want a right to eat, you have a responsibility to make sure that you have a supply of food. And on and on and on it goes. Think about not just your rights, but your responsibilities. And your responsibility to yourself and to your family is to work hard and make sure you do have the things that you need, especially when we have so much opportunity to solidify those positions today for next to nothing. It's so cheap to put a little bit of food away. It really is. Even things that seem expensive are not that expensive in the grand scheme. They require sacrifice. They require choice. But what's your life worth? I think it's worth an awful lot, and I think we have a lot of great living to do ahead of us in the United States but I don't think it's going to be business as usual. And my challenge to you is make sure you're doing the things today to be prepared for it, not to be business as usual tomorrow. Not for everything to end, not for everything to go away. Don't run off and hide. Don't be afraid. Be bold. But be bold with a purpose. Be bold with a plan. Don't be bold with arrogance. That's the problem with most Americans. We're bold in our arrogance. It'll be okay. They'll fix it. You know that's not the case. There's too many things wrong. Even if they fix half of them, we're still in deep shit. You know, if they fix 70% of what's wrong, we're still in a lot of trouble, folks. Think about that. If they fix 70% of the bad things on the horizon in the next 20 years, the other 30% have the potential to cause us undue misery if we're not prepared. Do you think they're competent enough to fix 70%, 80%, 50 Pick the number. We still have a lot of things to worry about. But instead of worrying, plan, and be prepared. And if we're wrong, if everything does get fixed, we're still going to be better off. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.